This season of The Ready State is sponsored by ButcherBox. Yeah, you know, we have been, we get asked a lot about nutrition. A couple things. One, your tissue quality is directly impacted by the quality of things you eat, unequivocally. And I think we can pretty much boil down all of the uh, information I know about nutrition into one sentence. Don't eat like an asshole. Here's the deal with ButcherBox. We've used it. We love it. You get a box of super beautiful grass-fed or finished beef, free-range chicken, and old-world pork, whatever that is. <laughs> it's like vintage pork. No, no. But here's the deal. I love bacon. You love bacon. Use our link. We'll get you $20 off and get some free bacon. And it's 9 to 11 pounds of meat for $129 a month, which is less than $6 a meal. I mean, forever we have been saying you should probably eat like a vegan plus the best meat you can afford. Vegan plus meat. And guess what? ButcherBox is that. It's, it's amazing. You like meat and want to avoid eating like an asshole and you love free bacon, go to butcherbox.com slash the ready state and you'll get $20 off and free bacon. No brainer. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! It is our great honor to have Dr. Stuart McGill on the podcast today. He is a uh, retired professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, um, kinesiologist, biomechanicist, and he's best known for being an expert on low back pain. Yeah, you know, I... I don't know when I first became Stuart McGill aware, as it were, but I'm pretty sure because I was he's a, a legend. I was a, I was a first year physical therapy student, and it's hard not to run into his books and his thinking and teaching around the mechanics of the spine. He really is one of the most important persons I've run into around thinking critically about how movement is somehow related to the ultimate health and longevity of our spines. I'm pretty sure his book, Low Back Disorders, was in our bathroom for the entire three years we were in physical therapy school. Am I right on that? <laughs> Fact. And, you know, it's a little light reading on the loo, as it were. So, uh, look, don't judge. Don't judge. But, um, you know, it's interesting. If you go back into Supple Leopard, what you'll see is we organize our thinking around a spine first sort of, you know, hierarchy. How do we, where do we begin? And I can honestly say that I can point to Stuart McGill as a solid reference and influence about why I think the spine is so important. And, and in the context of chronic pain, so much of the pain and persistent pain or even low back pain, the common pain, took my back, comes around the spine. And that's so we can define that from head to tail, as it were, on the human. If you want to learn more about Stu, you can check out his website, backfitpro.com. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah, he is. He's the bomb. Here we go. Stuart McGill, thank you so much for joining Juliet and I on The Ready State. We are really, I personally am a fanboy and am keen because, you know, and just to get out there in my personal bias, I tend to think about human function in terms of language of capacity and ability and, and function and wattage and output. And, you know, you have always been the voice of reason of biomechanics and physiotherapy for me in those terms. In in fact, maybe I couldn't say that I ever thought about my work as clearly as after I read your first book or maybe the third edition of your first book and really helped me to frame the, the conversation about not how much pain we have, but what should we be able to do as human beings? And I just thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Juliet and I. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Kelly and Juliet. Uh, I think we've shared a few patients over the years. Uh, and, uh, I've, I've, uh, enjoyed the very brief, uh, meeting times that we've had. So, uh, I'm looking very much forward to today. Well, you know, we want to, as you know, we're, we're discussing this, this hydra, this, this really complex phenomenon that is pain. And specifically when we, I think when we talk about pain, we, most of us think about back pain. And I think that's something, uh, a reasonable approximation where so many of us have had this experience with dysfunction in our spines or it's limited in our play or our ability to do our work. How did you, as a physio and as a biomechanist, how did you come to specialize in the work around the spine? 
Well, it's a very strange story. I was not really intending to go to university, but it's a story of uh, sport and gaining interest. Uh, once I started to attend university, uh, I uh, went as uh, to play sports, and in particular, uh, it was football. Now, don't get the the wrong idea. I was not a great football player or even a great athlete. I was uh, fifth string, but uh, nonetheless, it got me to university. And uh, I had some wonderful professors in uh, mathematics and physics and anatomy and whatnot. And I became just incredibly interested in, in what I was doing, something I was never able to find as a uh, high school student. Uh, but to make a long story short, I then applied for a master's degree in uh, biomechanics, mainly because I was uh, into road cycling by that time, and I wanted to ride uh, my bike in the Gatineau Hills and train in Quebec. So I chose the University of Ottawa, and I, I worked in general biomechanics there, but I happened to play hockey at this time for the professor's hockey team. And uh, in that league, the host team has the visiting team of professors back to their dressing room afterwards. This is after beating the hell out of each other for a, a couple of hours. And we share beers. And I sat beside a professor named Bob Norman, who was uh, he eventually became my Ph.D. mentor at the University of Waterloo. And he was just starting spine biomechanics. And uh, he invited me to the lab. I had a tour and, and switched into uh, that. Uh, and then at the end, uh, I became a, a professor of uh, spine biomechanics. I, I taught my first course in 1985. <laughs> that is the sneakiest, most subversive thing I've ever heard. That it was guy. like hockey to beers to spine biomechanics. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, of course, uh, after that, my clinical life uh, began. Uh, when we first started doing our experimental work, it was driven by uh, just one fundamental question. How does the spine work and what are the mechanisms of injury or micro damage through to pain and uh, inhibition of having a, a pain-free life? Well, um, slowly I would um, go to these uh, medical meetings and the medics would say, would you please see a patient with us? What you just described sounds as though it may be uh, a key mechanism in this challenging patient. And I would say, well, no, you know, I'm not a clinician. Uh, but they would say, don't worry, uh, we'll be with you. And I learned very quickly that our perspectives, uh, they are not trained in, in medical school. And uh, we conducted those assessments of patients following a very scientific process. We would control variables and we would probe uh, variables uh, such as postures or different motions or different loads. And we would see if the pain increased or decreased. Once we increased the pain, we would then examine once again, what was the trigger of that particular pain and the mechanism. And then we would do the mechanical opposite to see if we could decrease the pain. So that was the start. And of course, the process over the years has evolved uh, over several decades now. And over that time, we've developed more uh, new assessment tests, uh, probing the spine in, under shear loads and bending loads and compressive loads, traction loads, uh, different timing, different rates, uh, et cetera. We were able to integrate the imaging findings. We had a radiology suite in the uh, experimental clinic, and we learned to better interpret the stories that the uh, patients told integrating all of this information to converge on a understanding of why they have pain. Uh, and that's uh, really the, the process of how I became the aberration that I uh, am today. <laughs> I'm going to go with not, uh, I'm going to go with unicorn is a more appropriate word, you know, and, and uh, one of the things that I think you and I have shared patients before. And, but one of the, the remarkable pieces around this is just, the, the depth and breadth of the work that you do in terms of just, just so people understand is that you're at a university setting in, in still, but you still work at a granular level and really looking at 
how people move in the context of their lives and, and their jobs or their sports and performance. And we have so much more to get into, but I just, I wanted to put that pin in there that you're actually a user and are at the place where the rubber hits the road. You're not just in an ivory tower. Uh, I, I love working with uh, very difficult, challenging back cases that other people can't solve. And I love working with elite athletes, as do you, because it's like a car mechanic getting to work on an F1 race car. You learn what is possible. You know, I, I remember going to a neurology meeting and showing some data uh, from my work with a silver medalist sprinter at the Olympics. And I was showing some nerve conduction velocities from the spine, activating some of the muscles and terrific pulses. And the, and the, and the docs in the room would say, what is this, a, a cheetah? Well, what's your paradigm? And I, first of all, I didn't know what a paradigm was, but uh, I said, that, that's a human. And they said, no, that's not possible. It's not possible that the gun goes off and within 70 milliseconds, no, 30 milliseconds, pardon that, 30 milliseconds, they can blast their, their gluteals up to 70% of maximum in a pulse. And I said, it's not possible. How many of you have measured the second fastest man in the world? And of course the room was silent. They have no idea what is in the realm of human possibility. So that's why I love seeing what is possible. And what I learn by measuring the, the strong men in the Olympics, uh, in, in, in the lifters and the gymnasts and, you know, the mobile monsters and the, and the speed and power monsters is, is what's possible. So I can take it down to help people with pain who likewise have a very small margin of safety, just like the great ones do. There's not much wiggle room there. And so, uh, there you go. It's, it's a, it's, it's a fabulous uh, spectrum to converge on what really matters. So it's non-negotiable non for me. I have to do that work. So since the theme of our season is pain this year, could you please define pain for us as you see it? Wow. That, you know, on one hand, that question terrifies me. And yet on the other, I would love to have a crack at it. But first of all, a, a neurologist... Uh, would, would would be far more equipped to talk about uh, the mechanism and pathways of pain. But, you know, I do not find that helpful for me dealing with back pain patients. And let me explain why. <clears throat> There's a mega trend that, that I know you, you're well aware of in, in medicine, and it's away from the average, and it's towards precision mes medicine. Look what's happening in cancer, how the dosage is are, are, are fine-tuned to the individual. It's coupled with exercise to modulate the immune system so that the drugs can really have, have a good effect. It, it's all about the individual now. And that's my world of back pain. So we converge with every individual as best we can on a precise understanding of their specific pain mechanism. So a generic definition of pain is no longer helpful and it only creates more dissonance for the patient and for the clinicians. So, you know, the pain I deal with, it's real. It ends marriages, it ends athletic careers. Uh, like if you would allow me, can I change the question as to what triggers pain? Because that's the please, issue that please. that's the issue that matters in our world. I'm not yes, going to please. argue about substance P and all this kind of stuff that I can't measure and I can't create an intervention to change a person's life. But what does change their life is I probe and assess why that person has pain. In other words, what's their causal mechanism? All pain has a cause then we work to reduce or eliminate that specific cause to desensitize the pain. And then we work to build a foundation that that individual needs for pain-free activity. And as, as I know well from your work, it might be the tissue that's causing the pain, or it might be somewhere in their system, they have an underperforming tissue or mechanism that is now migrating the stress to their spine and creating a, a stress concentration as you, as I, you know, I remember one athlete that we shared, they had a stuck hip and it was causing their back pain because the stress was then transferred there. So, you know, I can explain that 
whole process of assessment if that would help. But that, that's my uh, response to being asked to define pain. Well, I, I think that's beautiful. And more importantly, the point is to have people begin to investigate, you know, as a human being, this is a normal experience that, that you know, when we, we talk to middle schoolers, we talk to kids in high school, we talk to kids in, I mean, it's the, their experience of mechanical-based, I'm just going to put it mechanical-based pain, begins early and seems to be now, much more than ever, such a normal experience and, and thought of as the kids, even at this early age, as a normal expression of how their bodies are supposed to feel. And I feel like what you've just done for us is is really gone to the heart of the, the question, which is not, you know, what are, what are the, 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 the nuances of this complex system that may be modulating or turning up or sensitizing us, but really thinking about the environment in a, that may be toxic or the way that we're engaging with our environment that has caused us this problem in the first place. And I, I think that's huge. Yeah. When, when a person comes to me, I, we just taught a master level assessment course this past weekend. And uh, I bring in real live patients who I've never met before. So it's as real as it gets. And the second fella came in was my age. He was middle 60s and he broke down crying in the interview, just describing to all the delegates, and they've all had these experiences themselves, how this pain has just, it, it, it dominates his life. It, it determines what he does every day. But uh, do you want a little overview of, of how I start to get at what I need to know to try and change that person's scenario and, and how they see their future? We're all yes, grinning please. because, yes, yes please. Like, yes. Okay. So what the course was about was we start with the interview. And my interview is to place the patient in a position of comfort and uh, a perception of uh, safety. So my clinic now, I've retired from the university. My clinic is in my house and, and the fireplace is always going. And the patients sit in front of the fire. I don't sit in front of them. I sit at 45 degrees from them, never in their face. I'm off to the side. And I say, tell me why you're here. And simply that, some of them are just so perfect in telling you what causes their pain, what they can do uh, that doesn't affect their back. Uh, I'm gauging their learning style so I know eventually how I'm going to coach them. Do I just need to tell them something and they'll do it? Or do I need to put my hands on them and, and get them to feel muscle? <laughs> and and I, I might uh, be interpreting their pain, whether it's in the morning and uh, do I need to look at their mattress? I might ask them, oh, do you mind hang, handing me that bag over there? Would you take your sh shoes off because we're going over there? And it's not that I want to protect my floors. Of course, I want to see them move. And these are all clandestine tricks to, to learn their movement habits. And when I go downstairs and then start provocative testing and I see what they, when they bend forward and then when they look down and add the neural tension, their left foot goes numb. I now see that every time they took off their shoe, they pick the scab and create numbness in their foot. So prior to this, they were absolutely clueless. But now I have a real beginning and putting together of recognizing all of the patterns. And some of the patterns, they're just running software. They tie their shoe the same way every time. And no one has ever probed their specific mechanism to know that they do not have chronic back pain. They have many acute insults and attacks to the pain mechanism all day long, continuing to pick the scab. But when this is pointed out to them, and, and uh, I, I might say that I've given you a very simple one. Going back to that second patient that I described, it was so interesting yesterday that when he sat down and flexed, he had no pain. But then when he flexed his neck and looked to the right, he did get a numb foot. Then we replicated that posture when he was laying prone. It was none to be seen. He only got the trigger when he shaped his lordotic curve in flexion and then added the neural tension. I mean, it was a very, very specific pain trigger. But once we pointed out to that, his whole demeanor changed 
from being overwrought with emotion to he started to walk with a, a jauntiness, a jive, a smile in his face. It changed the way he walked, his attitude was. So th there's an example of a, I never intervened with his emotional state with his happiness, with his confidence, with his empowerment to move, all I did was point out to him what was causing his pain, but it took a lot of probing to get there. And uh, that, to me, was the link uh, that he needed and the fusion of his emotional experience. But it started with mechanics, and, and I'm afraid I see today too many people who are too quick to default that, you know, the pain is in a person's head, not realizing that they overlooked because of the insufficiency of their exam, that there was a, uh, a physical cause. And I'm going to be so arrogant to say that I can almost always find a, uh, a physical cause, but I'm not going to say that the emotional is unrelated. Of course it isn't. But uh, anyway, there's a little bit of a process that would then guide very specifically our instructions to don't give them exercise, give them the movement tools so that they can now move in a way that they don't trigger the pain. It's a huge empowerment for them emotionally. And then, and this is where you and I come together, we strategically build mobility and strategic stability to unleash that uh, articulated linkage and follow the laws of the linkage and pull out performance. So there, there's a, a summary. Can I, you wouldn't be upset if I just trademarked laws of the linkage right now? Because that's so, that's completely elegant. And, you know, I, what I just want to reiterate for everyone is that, you know, what you've done in this situation particularly is really tried to articulate with the person the context in which their body exists in in the world, and I, I think one of the things you brought up for us that I want to highlight is that we always tend to rush to the idea that I am damaged or I am injured in some way that the it's irreparable that I have I have completely I have a patina of misuse over years and somehow this movement causes damage and that's the mechanism, and what I heard was that there may be about sensitivity and sensitization instead of damage. Did I hear that right from you? Uh, absolutely. Um, some point along the line, uh, I mean, let's just take an example of playing jujitsu. Uh, we can get someone to submit with pain, and there's no lingering damage. However, if we submitted that person every day, after a while, say it's an armbar submission or something, we are going to damage the rotator cuff. So that cumulative trauma uh, that's causing that that pain will eventually catch up and 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 lead to something a bit more uh, of a higher consideration for for you and I. Well, I think that brings us to a great place to talk about your newest book which I love and saw one post. I think it was just like a highlight tweet and I literally was on the waiting list to get it. And it's called the gift of injury. And it really talks about unraveling and your conversation and experience working with this incredible athlete named Brian Carroll, who frankly, if you had just taken a snapshot, just like the physicians who said, what kind of per animal is this? This must be a cheetah. You've taken someone if you'd taken the snapshot, people would said, oh, this is a human being who was in a plane crash and then a, and a plane crashed on the plane crash. And, and then you took the spine out and trashed it and then put it back in. Brian Carroll is one of the strongest, most incredible athletes I, I know in, in sort of my small worldview. And he ended up sort of bumping into you as, as sort of, a, of my understanding is, you know, really down the hole of needing some help and ways to understand. And can you talk about your work with him in terms of unraveling his experience of what was going on and how he got out of this, this predicament? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I didn't know Brian personally. I, I knew him just from my work with some elite power lifters. Uh, he was someone who had lifted 
a thousand pounds, uh, squatted a thousand pounds in, in international or national competition over 50 times. So this was someone who was elite, but had uh, some staying power and had been around for a while. And he phoned me up and he said, you know, I've, I've, I've been to surgeons, I've been to X, Y, Z, and uh, they, they told me I've done. And some of them have said, I'm, I'm never even going to get out of pain. Um, would you possibly see me? And I said, absolutely, uh, come on up. So he flew up and uh, I saw him and uh, I did a, a fairly thorough assessment. Um, but, you know, when you get to those elite athletes and their body isn't performing, they get a disgust about themselves. And Brian was just so disappointed in himself. Why can't he do this? But then he put his MRIs up. And I show those MRs in the book. I don't know if you remember those images, but he oh, yeah. had a horrific fracture. The poor fella, he'd fractured his sacrum front to back. He'd crushed his L5. And I'm, I'm done severe of vertebral damage. The uh, discs above and below were heavily, heavily damaged. So what I do after I, I, I perform an assessment and get that level of understanding of the mechanism, I say, what do I have to do to get this person out of pain? And then what do I have to do to build the body to bear load and be resilient once again. But Brian said something very peculiar to me. I, I, I honestly answered him. I said, I don't know if I can get you out of pain, but I'll try everything I know. Um, and then he said, I know you'll get me out of pain, but when I do, I want the next world record. <laughs> and I said, you know, <laughs> if, if, but this is the mind of the warrior, you know. And I, I said, well, if, if we can get you out of pain, um, uh, then... Uh, uh, and 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 get you back performing then maybe we'll, who knows we'll write a book about it and that was true uh, he tells that story in the book but anyway getting back to uh, this specific case of this massive injury I knew that he would not be able to do much therapy and really address the root cause when we had such massive fractured bone so I uh, took a cadaver I loaded it uh, to mimic very heavy deadlifting. And sure enough, I split the sacrum and the end plate of L5. And then I did vertebroplasty with um, uh, orthopedic bone cement, PMMA, and tried to seal the end plate. And, and, you know, just to see if it was possible if I could send him off to a colleague to do some kyphoplasty and rebuild the bone. But I knew then I, it would be very doubtful if he would ever become competitive again. But uh, I couldn't seal the end plate. It was unsuccessful. So I then said to him, good, let's try a bone callusing procedure. I've only done it a few times. It's going to be very experimental, but let's give it a try. And just a, a quick story on, on that for the listeners. When a person breaks a bone, um, your body builds a callus over the fracture, and that fracture usually is stronger than the non-fractured side. Um, and the mechanism is piezoelectric. So when you bend a bone uh, at the stress the, the, where, where the, 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 the crystalline structure of the metals that form the bone have the highest stress, they build an electric charge. And it's that charge that attracts and sucks in free ions of calcium and magnesium, scaffold them down, and that's what builds the, 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 the callus. So I said to Brian, but, but here, here's what bodybuilders do. They adapt and hypertrophy muscle. So typically they will break down the muscle in the training session only and really for the goal of adaptation uh, uh, the, the following day. And then they do it again the day after. So it's sort of a three-day-a-week uh, training regimen. But the grand old men and women of powerlifting, they only train once a week or even twice a week. And, and the newbies, the Facebook crowd, they think these guys are undertrained. But they're adapting a totally different process. The density of bone is, is enormous. The end plates of the vertebra, when you send a power lifter off to the radiologist for an x-ray, the x-rays come back, oh, this person has sclerotic bone on their end plates <laughs> as, as, as if it is pathology. But remember, the radiologist never knows if it's, if it's me or Brian Carroll they're looking at. They never see the patient. But that is the legacy of microfracturing and the 
building of the callus to harden their vertebra so that you can then squat thousands of, of pounds. So uh, anyway, um, the, the training regimen, the bone callusing regimen that I had Brian commit to was uh, he would train and then take five days off. And he would do it for a year. Now, he'll admit he cheated a little bit on me in the end. But the long story short of it is it's a testament to when you understand the real mechanism and you address that mechanism very precisely, you can adapt the tissues. So the second set of MRIs that we show were taken three years later. The uh, sacrum has filled in with bone. The L5 has remodeled. The collagen of the discs has remodeled. And he then, another year after that, won the Arnold's. And then he did it the following year. And he's he's now back being competitive again. So, you know, it, it, it's such a, a, a testament to how you can adapt tissues if you know the mechanisms and then have the discipline and commitment to exercise the timing and the load. And, and you know, again, I look, Kelly, I know who I, I'm, I'm talking to. You do the same thing with, uh, with, with your work. But uh, so we, we, we had this success, and then Brian held my feet to the fire, and he says, okay, let's write the book. So when you read the first chapter, which is only two pages, it's an emotional two pages. Brian yes. tells the story. He's sitting in his car. He's just had his second surgical consult, and he has a gun in his hands. His life is over. His cachet as a person was to be the strongest man. That was now robbed. So uh, he, he came from a very uh, dark place. But then when I read that, I realized man, this guy can write. This is fabulous. Much better than, <laughs> much better than my scientific dribble. So anyway, uh, he wrote the first chapter and then we told the story of his rehab and then, um, we, we got it going a little bit. And then we, the thing just, we both got excited about it. It was organic. We sat around his kitchen table. I'd go to Florida. He'd come up here. And uh, it then became a manual for strength athletes rebuilding their bodies to take load again. And we got into the, uh, uh, obviously, the, the mechanics of it. And then we got into the neurology of it. You know, how do you build and densify neural drive? The, the, the thought of movement starts in the brain, and that gets transmitted uh, into neural signals down the nerves. How do you train the nerves to carry more of that signal, really densify it and convert it to ultimate strength and build a core of iron and unleash the hips and all these kinds of things. So that that's how the whole book came about. And uh, it, it, it's one of the great joys of my last few years. Well, <clears throat> I hear a couple of things in there that I think is important. And I want people to hear is that at no point does your body lose its ability to be able to heal. You can turn that dial up, you can turn it down, stress, nutrition, sleep, all of those things matter, the habitus, being impatient. But even we have, my experience is I have never met a person who isn't able to improve the health of their tissues. And as we've talked about in this, in this series uh, of interviews, the, the brain has this incredible neuroplasticity. So does your body. Your body has an incredible bioplasticity. And you can in, rewire and retrain the, the context of how you inter, interact and, and move through your environment. And, and if it didn't have that, I don't think there would be human beings around very long. I think we would strain an ankle and that would be done. We, we'd be over. Uh I, I, I agree 100%, but there's always those uh, disappointments where um, uh, not all things. I'll, I'll just tell you a little story that you'll appreciate. So um, when Supple Leopard uh, came out, and I, I loved that acknowledgement in the beginning, and I said, wow, I, I, I love this guy already. And, and that little, uh, uh, what you said about your wife, 
prompted me to how I was going to frame the acknowledgement to my wife as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. There was a, a little uh, connection there. But um, I, uh, you know, I used to train heavy when I was uh, younger, obviously. And uh, anatomically, I, 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 I trained a few things that I really was too stupid to match the training to my anatomy. Anyway, I, I, I lost my hips in the end. And as you know, I've, I've had hip replacement. But uh, just as Supple Leopard came out, I was uh, uh, getting the last little bit of possible mobility out of my hip with some of the band exercises and whatnot. I don't know if I've ever told you that. But, no, uh, it, <laughs> I love it, that. In, in, in the end... I, uh, you know, you hit the wall and, uh, there is that day that comes where there's just nothing left, uh, of the joint. And I tried so hard to, to get that adaptation, but, uh, I lost that battle in the end. However, there is a time for surgery and I, I thank goodness that, uh, uh, science created some titanium and, uh, a bit of ceramic and, uh, <laughs> all the rest of it. Amen. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if you know this about me, Stu, and I'm a little bit younger than you, but I've actually had both my hips replaced. Uh, so I'm ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. Ahead and behind, sadly. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's uh, keep going with this grand experiment and and see how well some of the the, the new ceramics work. Uh, I guess we were just a little bit late on the curve because uh, they might be able to grow us a joint in a few more years. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully if uh, my kids suffer from the same problem, they'll get that. Um, you know, while you were talking about the gift of injury and working with Brian Carroll, uh, all I could think about was a question we actually often get at Mobility Wad, which is, well, this is all well and good, but, you know, I live in Florida and Kelly's in San Francisco and Kelly's a busy guy and I can't get to or get in to see Kelly or see Stu McGill. Um, what do I do if I'm just, you know, your average person listening to this that's suffering from back pain? What, what, what would you recommend? Where do I go? Where do I begin? Uh, I've thought about that, and I'm, I'm quite purposeful in my actions, I hope. So... Uh, I'm saying that because I'm not here to sell things, but I had to create things for those people. And in my world, no one would contact me for anything other than they have disabling back issues. So uh, as, as you know, I wrote my clinical texts for the medical community on how this whole thing works and assessment and, and some thoughts on, on organizing programs to address them. And I never in a million years thought I would write for the general public, but it was that question that motivated my book, Back Mechanic. And um, there was a, an agent from New York who, who shopped around the uh, manuscript to the American publishing houses. And they all came back and said, you know, this book isn't going to sell. Um, it, we need a title, <laughs> Fix Your Back Pain in Five Easy Steps. And I said, well, this is a lie. It doesn't exist and I'm not doing it. It's fair enough. Screw the system. I'm going to do it myself. So I uh, finished off Back Mechanic and it... Uh, as you know, takes the reader through a self-assessment of their pain because non-specific back pain doesn't exist. Everybody has a specific subcategory and a reason why they have pain. So I guide them through a, a quite simple self-assessment uh, so that they can understand what, what are the specific postures, motions, combinations of loads that I can do that don't cause me pain? And what can I do that does or what what do I do that does cause me pain can and then I offer the movement tools ways to accomplish squatting and lunging and pushing and pulling that minimizes the uh, insulting pain trigger then we teach them spine hygiene how do you brush your teeth? How do you get on and off the toilet? Um, how do you sneeze? How, because these are the things that people say, you know, I sneezed, right? I reached forward and flushed the toilet. 
And that's how I had my last acute tack. And then I, I said this to the doctor and all they could tell me was, well, just keep moving. Don't worry. It's more important. We don't want to give you movement fear and all this kind of stuff. And uh, But the patients I see, when I explain to them, here's what I've assessed that causes your pain. Here's how you can now hip hinge rather than flex during your spine and you're absolutely bulletproofed. And then I get them to lift load, avoiding that mechanism. And all of a sudden they, they get the point. They are empowered. They've learned a new way to eliminate that specific pain trigger. So that's what spine hygiene is all about. Then we get into the issue of can we rebuild your body uh, to accomplish the tasks that you want to do. What are your goals? Okay, I want to play golf. Fabulous. You've mentioned that to every previous clinician, and they started mobilizing you and doing these different things to get you to play golf. It was the wrong goal. The first goal is always reduce the pain. Then when that's successful, we morph, we change the program. Great. Now we can train to play golf and then we will get strategic mobility and stability and the neurology that we need so that you can play again in ways that are creating the stress and the force, but they don't trigger your, your previous pain. And those will slowly wind down and, and the tissues will adapt and all the rest of it. So that's the book, Back Mechanic. It's why I wrote it. And it's to... Uh, because, uh, again, uh, I, I'm going to talk about impediments now. There is no provision for a patient in the medical system to go and get more than 10 minutes with a doc. Now, it takes me three hours sometimes for an assessment and to tell the person what not to do and what to do. How can someone do that in 10 minutes? It's not easy. The book isn't five easy steps. It's 17 chapters progressively going through and, and building the house with the strong foundation and tuning their body. So uh, <laughs> I, I had to write that book in the absence of the availability of something in the medical system that would uh, give it to them. It doesn't exist. Now, I know uh, people like you and I, that's that's what we do, but we, we, we can't see millions of people. Anyway, so that's why we write the supple leopard and, and back. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And then, you know, you know, one uh, one quick story is I literally just said to Kelly this morning driving in that uh, about my primary care physician and how how great it would be if she had a whole hour to spend with me when she first met me just to, um, just even an hour, not even three hours, just an hour to sort of know who I am and what I do and what I eat and how I move. And, um, but that's not how our system is set up. Is it? No. Can, can I, that's a fun story just came to mind. May, may I tell it? It would take three or three minutes. Please. Uh, on occasion, I'm invited to a, a medical school. Would you see three patients in front of our docs and our surgical fellows and uh, physical therapy students, etc.? I was asked to go to a uh, hospital, and uh, they brought out my, as my first patient a big rugby player, and I had 20 minutes to assess him and declare what I thought what, what were his trigger, triggers and a, and a plan of action. But the second patient was a woman in her 70s, who came out obviously emotionally distraught. And I said, you know, tell me what, what's going on. And the first thing out of her mouth was, it wasn't about her pain. It was that the physical therapists had thought that she is incompetent in squatting. And when she gets up off the toilet, she's going to fall. And therefore, she must leave her home and go into a patient care facility. You can imagine the emotional impact that that has on her. So she told me that. I said, really? Um, would you sit on that stool pretending it's a toilet? And she sat on the stool with her knees together, her feet together, spinal collapse, the most pathetic squat you ever saw in your life. And yes, I was in fear that she was going to fall. I said, do you mind standing up off the toilet to mimic that for me? Again, the most pathetic incompetent squat you could imagine. 
And then I said, look, let's stand up, sniff a little air. And then what? And I said, sniff like, 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 like you mean it. Put some, some strategic stiffness into your torso. Uh, I didn't use that language, but that's what I was trying to achieve. And I said, put your hands on your thighs. Have you ever seen the game? This was in England, by the way. Have you ever seen the game of cricket? Watch those outfielders. Go down and play cricket. Immediately, she ran her hands down her thighs, put them on her knees, and grabbed her knees. She, she, I, she said, do you mean like this? I said, absolutely like that. But let's do it again. Stand up. Now, spread your feet apart. Balance the, the, the pressure under your foot into the middle of your foot. Grip with your toes and heels into the ground. She says, you mean like a monkey? And I said, yep, yep, I got it. Now I'm connecting with her. And now I said, run your hands down your thighs, but move your hips back and don't let your knees come forward. And I just put my hand as a target. I said, move your, 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 your bottom, as they say in England, back to touch my hand. She did the most perfect hip hinge. And then at the bottom, and I said, now humor me and lift your tail. Good. I got a little bit more lordosis. And then I said, do a little, you're shrugging through your shoulders. Anti-shrug for me. Fabulous. She carried more weight on her arms. Now I said, you think to stand up, you have to lift with your back. What I want you to do is push down with your hands. So I was just tricking her into some proximal stiffness. And I said, now pull your hips forward and stand up. She did. And then I did it again. I got her to sit on the toilet. And uh, I mean, afterwards, I did a little hip scour exam and found that she was a little bit impinged in her hips uh, with, with adduction. But when she spread her, her knees apart, uh, she had wonderful mobility. So we, we, we just fine-tuned it. And you can get where this was going. And then she sat on the toilet. And I said, now, good. Spread your knees and get your feet underneath you. Sniff a little air, lean forward through your hips. Now pull your hips through and stand up. The most perfect competent squat. Kelly and Juliet, that took three minutes. And then her whole emotional state changed. And I said, well, what's up with you? And she says, I don't need to leave my home, do I? And I said, absolutely not. Can you imagine what that three-minute coaching, coaching section, session did? And, and, and the medics were aghast. They don't think mechanically. They don't know how to tune a Ferrari or, uh, yeah, a Ferrari and F1, sure. They don't know how to tune a Ferrari to win on the F1 racetrack. How in the hell are they going to tune a person who is incredibly disabled just because they have all the hardware and they don't even know how to use it? So I did zero tissue adaptation with her. All I did was empower her with a little bit of good coaching. So, you know, I, I hear these people say, oh, yeah, you know, move, uh, don't ever tell the person the mechanism. You're going to give them movement fear and whatnot. Are you kidding? We just empowered her and removed all her fear. End of story. Sorry for the long one, that. But, but that changes lives. You know, I remember working as a young therapist in a hospital and – Realizing ultimately, I was I was doing these extensive, you know, work in the ICU and do these extensive um, chart reviews and talk to all the interdisciplinary people and understand what's glue mechanism. And ultimately, what we were working on was strategies to roll over in bed, to be able to sit at the edge of the bed and just stand up and walk around. I mean, ultimately, that was the the root of the expression of how the person is going to move in the world. And it's easy, it's easy to miss that, I think. I think it's easy not because it's not necessarily taught or people haven't come through that idea of, of building resiliency. And that brings me up to something you said earlier, because I, I really liked in your book for the average person that you described earlier. In your, uh, I think in the acknowledgments, you said it was the most difficult book for you to write because you know, you're really trying to speak in principles that spoke to people that allowed them to take a crack at fixing themselves, which is a, definitely a, a principle that we share you mentioned posture and you know it's around my house julius is grinning right now because posture is like my trigger word is that i hear a lot of people say posture doesn't matter that it just doesn't matter that that we've we've given people complexes about posture and when i say posture maybe i haven't defined it but the the root of latin for posture is position and what i've heard you say is hey here are some reference positions really make your spine stiff and, and resilient and hearty. And it seems to me that we have to have this conversation about what the biomechanics of the human being say 
about what are the positions in which we can handle the most force. And then that can almost guide us backwards into restoring people's function. Am, am I crazy in thinking this way? No, we're under uh, an era of, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a polite word to call it. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, posture. We migrate stress through our body through postural change. Show me the evidence that says posture doesn't matter. Now, I know there's a, a study that came out that showed in school kids there wasn't a, uh, a link between posture and, and back pain incidents. But those same authors a few years ago showed that there was a link between posture and adults. So my, my take on that is, yeah, bad, bad posture will catch up with you over time. Look at the number of athletes that we've seen where sooner or later that bad posture, and, and we can define what bad posture is, I suppose, but it will catch up over time. And uh, what is load on a tissue? Uh, it's magnitude, it's repetition, and it's duration. If you don't think posture matters, hold a pound of butter out in front of your hand, uh, in, in your hand, and hold it out in front of you for a day. Your muscles will be screaming. And if you keep doing, other things are going to happen. So when I see a person slouching in a chair, because the spine is a lot more than a collection of muscles. The uh, patterns of disc bulging, if we want to go to that specific, there, there are many mechanisms that create disc bulges, but one of them is hydraulic pressure. So the disc is not a ball and socket joint. It follows the rules of fabric, but it's a complex composite fabric. The disc is collagen fibers held together with a gooey ground substance, and these fibers are arranged in concentric rings. Uh, if you keep moving the spine under load as if it's a ball and socket joint, it will adapt and the ground substance will become soft so that when you really put high load down the spine, the hydraulic pressure in the gel within will get pushed through the delaminations in the, in the ground substance uh, between the fibers. Now let's shape the spine to direct the hydraulic pressure. Let's sit slouched or worse yet, let's do a squat with a hundred kilos on the back. And then the person argues, oh, it's okay to butt wink at the bottom of the squat. Well, it may or it may not be. We'll test that and find out. But let's just say that person has delaminated the, the collagen now with too much loaded mobility and they uh, sit flexed and then they, uh, after 15 minutes, they get real back pain sitting at their computer. Another five minutes, their big right toe goes numb. There's a mechanism for this. What's going on? The usually, and we, we measure this, I'm not talking through my hat here, the uh, flexion posture, and that's what we're talking about, has directed hydraulic pressure through an open fissure that they've created through inappropriate training that is now pressing on a nerve root. But when they stand up and go for a 10-minute fast walk, in other words, changing the posture and reshaping the lordotic curve, the numbness goes away and their back pain goes away. So, you know, I don't know where this, this business about it doesn't make sense. I've never seen any uh, evidence to support it. Only evidence that uh, it's it's uh, just silly silliness. And here's a note to the listeners: um, you talk about trying to keep your NFLers from sitting on the sideline before they in between plays. You talked about this in one of your books. And then you know tissue creep; those discs start to change in, in shape, and the, hydro, the hydrostatic pressure changes. And then they go up and, and run into each other. And to this day, there's no sitting allowed on my girls' volleyball teams. They're not allowed to sit and slouch on the sideline. And that's everyone who's listening who knows this. This is the source of that information. Well, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll see many athletic teams where we have changed how they rest to prepare them to play by adjusting their posture. So anyone who says posture doesn't matter my next question to them, and it will embarrass the hell out of them, because I'll say to them, how many gold medals have your patients won? 
How many teams have won world championships? And you find out, oh, they're the world champion in their, in their mother's basement. They do not have yeah, the gold the... medal. But when, when, when I will stand by my record in changing some of those and restoring those athletic careers, and they might be in, in, in just a terrific sport like jujitsu, where their bodies have to become absolutely reptilian, boa constrictors. Po posture matters a lot, but it's incredibly strategic. Bad posture is, is how you get your opponent to submit, how to cry like a baby for their life. Oh, it's so, anyway. Yeah, so, so, posture, so posture doesn't matter so until it matters, is what you're saying. Well, and, I, and I'll just say that those people are world champions of being uh, nasty on Twitter, I would say, and that's probably about it. Well, they're, they're what they are. Unfortunately, social media has given them a forum that is not earned. When I grew up, you know, I gave my retirement speech at the university a year ago. And I started as a professor and teaching in 1985. Think back to those days. There weren't any computers. And I mentioned to the students, you know, we didn't have any computers. And this is why we only had three subjects in that study, because it took us a year to do the hand calculations, et cetera. And they, they came, some of them came up to me afterwards and said, sir, how did you do your work without computers? <laughs> but, you know, they forget that if we would have meetings and face-to-face -face meetings, and there was rules of engagement for discussing scientific matters, and and there was never anything personal about it. Uh, I, in, when I would teach graduate students, there was always a lot of the rules of engagement of how you seek the truth and converse with people of different opinions. They're not idiots. They've done their work too, but you call the evidence and the strength of evidence and you judge it again following certain rules you're a court of law you're creating uh, evidence in a murder case where the circumstantial evidence becomes overwhelming and then you test the hypothesis the the alternate hypotheses again that these are the rules that we all learned but it's absolutely lost on this social media group uh, these days, but it gives forums to people who haven't earned the right to even have an opinion yet, but they are marketers. Well, one of the things that I, I love, and, and Juliet has another question, is I love how transparent you've been throughout your entire career. You have, I, you can go on YouTube, I can see there are examples of how you evaluate people. I can see your thinking, and I think that transparency is also part of the, the, the conversation about why you've had such dramatic results, I think, even with the, the people you get to work with, is that you say, hey, here's what I think I can do, here's what, I, what we're going to try to do, and even just that transparency, I think, uh, sets, sets you apart, and I just want to give you full credit for that, because it's so easy to lob a poop bomb and not show any of your own work. And you have always been the gentleman who has shown us more of your own work and really encouraged us to be transparent in our work. And I, that, that's really important, and, and, and I'm thankful for it. Well, I, I, I do appreciate that because I try very hard to do that. And, um, yeah, in, in any public discourse, uh, that, that's what, exactly what I'm trying to achieve well, Stu, we have this conversation can go long time. We um, you, there's some great interviews with you talking with Chris Stefan on his podcast. Uh, if you are more curious about this thinking and about how seminal, you know, it, it I'll just say that I can't believe you're not a physio. I didn't know that, and like I, I mean, I'm stunned because your book and thinking is the most influential thinking, some of the most influential thinking on my, my capacity as being a movement teacher. And, and really, uh, you know, I almost feel like sometimes I'm a mechanist. I'm a mechanist who understands sleep and stress and these other things. But, you know, the way you have thought and transmitted that, and, you know, we are just internally You're grateful. You're an engineer, I'm an engineer. We, we will make sure that people have access to your writing and thinking in our notes and in our write-ups. And I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us. And, you know, it is such a privilege. 
We're so grateful. Thank you so much. And and likewise. Thank you uh, for all the work you do. Uh, I love it. <laughs> and uh, good on you, you too. And, and you know what? I'm going to say one more thing. Uh, Juliet, uh, you don't know this. And I I, I, uh, I guess, I've, have I only met you twice as a Kelly or... I think so. Yeah. And, uh, but I've overheard uh, some of his conversations and, uh, if you only knew what he said about you, what he said about you in the, uh, uh, acknowledgement of, uh, supple leopard, uh, I've, I've, I've overheard him, uh, say to others. So you're a fabulous team and an inspiration. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much Stu. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it!